Thank you sir for giving this opportunity to have a conversation with you. My pleasure. I'm excited to know your views about the state of Indian economy right now and also know about some systemic changes that we can try to bring in so our trajectory gets better. So I start off by introducing you. You started off as a medical practitioner then decided to pursue civil services and worked as an IAS officer and worked on many important laws like RTI Lokpal and the National Health Mission. So, my first question would be, what do you think was different? How was the transition from a bureaucrat officer to a politician? And how was your experience and the interaction between you and people? To my mind, there is no difference at all. It's all about the goals. My goal always has been, perhaps in the past 46 years or so, since 1973, I was then just about uh, 16 or 17 years old. My goal always has been to, to try and help India transform its governing institutions. Because a democracy, while superficially it looks okay, there are elections, there is peaceful transfer of power, there are freedoms. In reality, the governance system is dysfunctional. We are not getting the best out of ourselves. We were not getting what we expected to get out of the freedom of the country and democracy. And since then, my quest has been to understand what is wrong with our governance system and to fight to set it right. So I joined IAS only for that reason. I was lucky that I had a chance to do some things, but to learn a great deal. And once I realized that there is a systemic change required, not merely competent management, and there must be people to understand the changes required, articulate the changes, mobilize public opinion, and persuade those in authority to bring about the changes. There are these four steps. These are all the steps that are not an officer's job. An officer is a public manager. Whereas a citizen can and must do all these things. Therefore, I chose to be a citizen and then mobilized fellow citizens to build a movement. And as part of that quest, once we felt that if you get sufficient vote, then the parties will listen much more uh, sincerely and they'll feel compelled to bring about the changes required. Therefore, a political party. So it's all really about the same goals, only the vehicle changes from time to time. And personally, for me, there is no difference between this role or that role. Because the qualities you bring to the table, the effort you make, and the approach you have is more or less similar, except that certain positions give you certain opportunities a little more than other positions. That's all. If you try to draw some parallels between your journey and the journey of Ahmadi Party as a movement, you can even compare yourself and Navin Kejival. Both of your ex-bureaucrats worked on RTI strong participation in anti-corruption movement but somehow AAP went on to make much more success in their own political journey but your journey failed to mobilize as much people as AAP could. What do you think AAP did differently and what worked for them and didn't for you? We must first understand the nature of our politics as a country. Our democracy is limited to vote and shout. And the parties are compelled to build a vast missionary for intermediation. 
so that the people can have access to somebody, some mentor to hold their hands and hopefully do the work as influence peddlers to get things done in a government office. And there is enormous money power for vote buying and freebies. That is, after getting elected with the public money, instead of government doing what it ought to be doing for the collective good, try and transfer some individual goodies and get the vote. This is the pattern of Indian elections. In this context, and we have also a first-past-the-post system, Westminster model, first-past-the-post system. Therefore, the elections center around two major parties always, except in an odd case, Uttar Pradesh and Karnataka to some extent. Because of some specific reasons, they are able to mobilize certain caste groups around certain political parties. Therefore, there are three parties there, significant parties I am talking about. Otherwise, it is a two-party system by definition. No matter how many parties are there, the real contest and competition are limited between two major political parties. This is the backdrop. Now, in this backdrop, a third party will simply not get the vote. Rural areas are unlikely to understand the larger melees because they are completely captivated by the political machine. Without the machine's support, they are afraid that they won't get even a day-to-day -day things. A ration card, a birth certificate, a Pattadar passbook, or some land record, a survey, or something, municipal water connection, or power connection. Almost nothing happens in India without some intermediation. Therefore, it is very difficult to persuade rural people to go outside the clutches of the two dominant parties existing at that point of time. And that's why if you take Lok Sattva, our vote share in Hyderabad was about 10%. Whereas in villages it was only 1% or half percent. The same credibility, the same visibility, the same confidence. But voting pattern varies dramatically because of the dependence of the voters on the political machine in villages much more than in cities. Now let's come to Delhi, AAP experience. There are three reasons why this could go beyond the 10%. Initially went up to 25 or 28% and later became higher in the next election. The reason is A, Delhi has the highest per capita income. Delhi has five times the per capita income of the rest of India. As incomes rise, the awareness rises. Why is that cities give you 10% vote and villages only half percent, one percent? As incomes rise, your dependence on political parties for day-to-day -day survival is less. And hopefully, you are willing to vote without taking money from the candidates. These two will be significantly different with higher incomes. Therefore, there is a possibility that you will look at a reform party. But that's not enough. The second is, Congress party suddenly disappeared for a time in Delhi because of huge unpopularity on account of the national factors, the anti-corruption movement and the women's uh, safety and uh, local horrific incidents like rape, etc. The people became very hostile to the then governing party. Once a, one major party disappeared, a vacuum has arisen. AAP could quickly occupy that vacuum because they already built some organization and some public profile is there and credibility is there. But above all these, there is a third factor, which is the most important one. In Delhi, the Delhi government is the most empowered local government of India. We call it Delhi State Government or Unitary Government. But in reality, Delhi Chief Minister is the most empowered mayor of India. 
much less empowered than mayors in other countries, but much more empowered than any mayor in India. Therefore, people in Delhi know that a vote for a new formation could actually change things. Whereas a vote in Hyderabad, Chennai, Bangalore, Mumbai or other cities does not change anything because the power is still entirely in the state government's hands. Unfortunately, the third tier of local governance empowerment has not happened in India. Delhi, by accident of circumstances, because of union territory and the legislation given specially, Delhi has to some degree empowerment. That's why I am arguing all the time, if you empower our cities, there is a hope that no, some new forces will come. New recruits will come into politics with idealism and reform agenda. And not everywhere, but in some places, depending on circumstances, they can become important forces for change. By not empowering city governments, by weakening local governments, having merely elections and having titular local governments, we are not allowing this political transformation. And of course, there is another factor that helped in Delhi that could happen elsewhere also tomorrow, which has not happened yet. The media gave immense, immense publicity. And in politics, media is the oxygen. There is tremendous amount of publicity at that time. Today, there is some adverse publicity given to them. But in the initial mood, there is no place in India where any party got anything near that kind of massive publicity. They sucked up all the oxygen of publicity. So, it's a, that very happy circumstances, combination of factors that gave it a chance. Elsewhere, the same chance will be there if local governments are truly empowered. We are not empowering them. Yes. One other thing I noticed was different between you and Amadmi party was they had multiple faces under under one name like Yogendra Yadav, Prashant Bhushan, at least in the initial stages of their movement, which kind of helped them get more popularity within the public. Again, it's a function of intellectual and economic capital. The richer the place is, the more educated the place is, the more talented leaders emerge. Unfortunately, in India, there is political centralization, cultural centralization, intellectual centralization, media centralization. We are not realizing the damage done to ourselves. Anything happens in Delhi, we make it a national problem. Anything happening in Maharashtra, Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, AP, it's a local problem. It's a very silly approach in a democracy, but we are paying a heavy price because of that. Right. There is always centralization, that's true, but right now with the advent of social media and the digital literacy in India and the penetration of data, we are seeing a trend wherein the ideas are now spread more democratically and there is a constant discourse. That's a positive sign somehow. Right. And talking of India's growth story, we have the youngest workforce in the whole world right now. Our average age is around 28 years. and we have uh, the lowest amount of population in the old ages, which is usually the area where we have the government spends more in form of social security and, and pension, etc. But you see that there is a trend of reducing female workforce participation, 60-year high unemployment rate. What do you think is going wrong or is there something that we've done systemically wrong all this while that is showing its effect right now? You know... In 1991, when economic reform came, there was optimism in the air, a lot of confidence that our unfulfilled potential will now be fulfilled. Because government, very foolishly, with very short-term, unthinking, socialist policies, basically socialism, not in the best sense of the term, but in the worst sense of the term. If socialism meant quality education, quality healthcare, good infrastructure, still the 
a lot of good would have happened. Instead of good infrastructure, quality education, quality healthcare, our socialism became central control, government monopoly, inefficiency, corruption, license, permit, quota. So, we got all the negatives of socialism without the positives of socialism until 1991. Some elements of this are set right. Namely, the license permit quota Raj to a significant extent, not wholly, but to a significant extent in many sectors, not all sectors. Banking is still controlled by the government substantially. Many other sectors still government is dominant player or exercise real monopoly. But to a large extent in other sectors, monopoly has been given up. Suddenly, there is a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, what they call animal spirits. A lot of bright young people like you with good ideas, some capital, some risk appetite have come forward and there is real competition. Technology has come in, investment has come in and ultimately because of competition, we all benefited. Your telephones, your consumer goods, from cars to capital assets like cars and automobiles, etc. And fast-moving consumer goods. In all this, there is a tremendous amount of search. The kind of choice and variety and competition that never existed suddenly came about and people responded and we have done reasonably well. But that's not enough. The other things... True, the liberalization story had its maximum effect in the in the early years of the first decade of 20s, in the 2000s basically. And right now, I think it's has reached its saturation. Why? Look at China. China liberalized in 1978. We started in 1991. We did a lot of compulsion. China, there was no political compulsion. But they were wiser. They had wise leadership in the name of uh, Deng Xiaoping and his team. And therefore, he foresaw that the socialist vision of an economy is a disaster. Therefore, the communist vision, they left it only for the state country, state's order in society to give a cohesion and unity for the country. But economy, they completely liberalized, much more than India did. Take for instance, I'll give one example. Even 20 years ago, the retail chains, whether Walmart or Terry Carrefour or Tesco, massive retail chains were allowed. As big as a whole city block or sometimes big towns or something. Huge trade. Removing all intermediation. To give one, even today India has not done anything like that. Anything like that. Similarly, decentralization of power. China decentralized power despite being an authoritarian country much more than India can even imagine even today. Their cities are so powerful and local leadership is so completely free to do whatever it thinks is right within the broad umbrella of the national policy. But there is no direction from Beijing or a state capital telling them what to do in a city. Even today it is unthinkable in India. But most of all education and healthcare. Education and healthcare they are the ones that give you skills, that give you productivity, that allow people to work better. And China's productivity is much, much higher than India's per, per capita productivity because skills are there. Our education is very flawed. It's absolutely substandard. Namesake education. Yeah. Do you do see that there is a decent amount of effort put in to skill development in our country. There is... A also, private participation with the government in form of the National Skill Development Corporation, which is working on multiple fields, but the conversion rate is pretty low, as we know, almost 
10 to 20 percent of people only get employed after such programs no we see in india there's nothing which is not stated in some paper or some program of government what matters is what is actually happening and there's no point showing a few test cases or a few demonstrable examples what we require is the average overall what is happening if i show one good school one good iit and they are good products but a million others are useless that doesn't really help the country china look at the quality education up to 8th grade every child gets education of very high quality at zero cost from 9th grade onwards there is some fee not very high fee but there is some fee 9th to 12th again very good quality education guaranteed healthcare it could have been much better but it's much much better than india's so the basics they have taken care local government and infrastructure the state focused entirely on infrastructure since 1978 today chinese infrastructure infrastructure is the world's number 1 not number 2 not number 3 not america not britain not not um, japan longest express highways highest bridges you name it the largest ports in the world five of the top 10 are in china now in every sector china has become number 1 now in infrastructure from next to nothing whereas even today though there is some improvement here and there we are nowhere near in the top range in the world so we bungled very badly and even now unless we set these things right and unless we allow the private sector and the competition to emerge in areas where government is still holding on to the monopoly even now we could not privatize air india india is losing annually 8000 crores who is losing taxpayer instead of building infrastructure and doing what is required you are doing that and what are the public sector banks doing even though public sector managers and employees are as good as anybody else because of government's political control you give it to favored cronies all the money they don't repay and there is debt increasing non non performing assets are increasing banks uh, deficits are increasing losses are mounting and government is funding the losses without funding infrastructure why should you do that so even now even the economic liberalization is not completed and the things government ought to be doing rule of law the on paper rule of law is there you know, enforcing contracts or settling disputes in india is a humongous task it takes years and years and years and enormous cost might has become right how can you have economic growth so growth is stunted because a government's failure or bad government policies a combination of these two where government has to act government has failed spectacularly it's a combination that is now holding us back basically what it means is 19th century politics and 21st century economy cannot go together we have to modernize our politics and our policy we have not yet done it yeah even in this budget around 70000 crores were used to recapitalize the public sector banks so it's kind of turning out to be a model of socialization of loss and privatization of profit it's basically people's money that's being shoved into public sector banks to revive them to solve the npa problem which is not a good sign so if you look at our journey we we start on the first industrial revolution because of the colonial power that was that we were under the second industrial revolution we partly missed due to the same reasons but just after we became independent we didn't really focus on large scale manufacturing as a result china overtook us in that and the third industrial revolution the one with technology we kind of took advantage of it but marginally we are still marginal players you know somehow they assumption that india is a great player in it revolution is a false assumption we are only fighting for the 3% 
of the IT sector because we are not into great product development. That's where big money is. We are basically into service provision, back office. That's all. So we are entered it. But compared to the total market in the IT sector or computer sector, our role is still peripheral. Yeah, right. But the next one, the fourth industrial revolution, it's going to be about AI, augmented reality, and other latest technologies that are growing exponentially. Do you think we stand a chance in those areas? How is our journey going to be in that field? No, it provides us an opportunity, but there are also risks. Opportunity because let's take mobile telephones. The moment in India did not do what it took to build telephone sector initially. But post-1991, we could actually leapfrog. In some ways, we can say our technology is better than American technology. So we could leapfrog. So fourth industrial revolution, as you said, is about uh, 3D printing, additive manufacturing. It's about uh, fusion of the physical, with the digital, with the biological. It's about uh, artificial intelligence. It's about genetics and genetic manipulation beyond what we ever imagined was possible 10-15 years ago. Therefore, the world is leapfrogging. Therefore, it's an opportunity for a new country which could not really keep pace with the other countries, rich countries in the first three industrial phases. Provided you have a solid science and technology establishment, research and development capability, you have very high quality human resource and you have created the conditions in which people will take risks either protecting intellectual property or developing intellectual property or investing money in the new sectors and risk appetite. Now, we have done none of these things well enough. Therefore, we have here and there a few sparks. But the basics are not right because take our education. There are 1.5 million engineering graduates in India. Seriously speaking, 85% or so cannot be classified as engineers in any self-respecting society. They only have pieces of paper they are by no means engineers by any standard. We simply claim they are engineers, we give them a piece of paper. Their knowledge base, their understanding of concepts, or application of concepts is not even at school level in serious economies and societies. The poorest people are willing to sacrifice a great deal and pay disproportionate sums for education. Government is spending vast sums relative to our income and education. Society values education and learning. All the Demand side factors are extremely good, but supply side is lousy. Government has no understanding of what good education is. Rote learning, rampant mass copying, these are the two fundamentals of our education at school and college level. How can you be part of the fourth industrial revolution if this is your intellectual capital? We have intelligent kids. Intelligent kids with good IQ are necessary but not sufficient. Where are the skills? Where is the knowledge base? Where is the R&D base in the country? We can do it, but we are not doing it. There was an editorial in the recent Indian National Science Academy which stated worrying conditions for Indian research. Basically, our, our research funding has been stagnant or static for a couple of years now. And also, it's one of the lowest among the major economies. Absolutely. So, you can, you can go on and on. I already mentioned R&D. R&D, for instance. And take, for instance, even things where we are big consumers. Take genetically modified seeds. India probably consumes the most seeds in cotton. GM seeds, BT cotton, etc. About 97% of India's cotton uh, sown area is under GM seeds. 
India could easily have developed indigenous capability to produce GM seeds. No, we failed. So instead of developing that, we are trying to regulate the supplier. And therefore, guaranteeing that they won't develop future technology to suit our needs because they believe we are not a good market. Instead, the challenge is not how to regulate and harass them, but how to create indigenous research capability. We have we used to have first trade agricultural universities, 25, 30 years ago, they were excellent universities. But even those universities, they have come down because of government policies and neglect. We have the capacity inherently. We fail to do it. So, that's one area. I can cite any number of examples like that. I'm curious, what do you think about GM crops in general? If you see the General Economic Advisory Council, which is kind of uh, the regulating authority for GM crops in India, there was a recent... Uh, so, uh, test conducted by the CSE, which took out samples of imported products from other countries, including some forms of edible oil, which had around 30% of those products had GM ingredients, but they were the products themselves were not labeled as GM products. Do you think we are somehow failing to regulate properly and also at the same time costing our Indian farmers and Indian manufacturing by stopping production domestically for GM crops? Very often, many people with very little understanding of the science behind it have very emotional views. What is genetic modification? Nature actually is doing that through evolution. How did we come about? There was no domesticated uh, dog 20,000 years ago. How did that come about? All these are genetic modifications. A. Nature did it through natural selection, that's what Darwin's theory is. That took a long time. B, humankind understood the selective breeding. So they could do it faster. But that still took centuries. The dog, for instance, became what it is today, the domesticated dog from wolf. Because of selective breeding. So that is, you are artificially doing it. Now, science and technology gave you a much greater opportunity of not merely selective breeding of looking at the two parents and then crossing them, but actually identifying the gene and introducing the gene. So it's simply in advance of that science. You can do it faster in one generation, presto, something new has happened. Not by accident, but by design. So first of all, the notion that genetic modification is something new or unique is nonsensical. We simply have greater capacity, technical opportunity, and knowledge that mankind never had. But even without that technical capability, the fundamentals are understood and mankind already was doing for 10,000 years selective breeding, agriculture to animal rearing. It is right that there must be very fair and sensible regulation to see that there is no damage and there is benefit. We have regulatory mechanisms world over in our own country. For instance, in America, there are some bunch of Americans, very ill-informed, well-meaning but utterly ill-informed Americans who are saying vaccines are dangerous. Vaccines cause autism. Absolute nonsense. What are they, What's happening now? In New York City, there's an emergency now because there's a measles epidemic. Similarly, there are many areas today so far, more than a billion, more than a billion hectares of land. Actually, now probably the latest is 1.5 billion hectares of land went through genetically modified crops. There is not a single case in all the world of a human being's health being damaged by genetically modified foods. Not one single demonstrated case. So denying new technology is an absurdly foolish thing. Have adequate safeguards 
Look at what's happening in the world. Do not shoot yourself in the foot. And one index where we made tremendous progress, I'd say, and which has a great potential to influence our markets and our growth story is the ease of doing business index. We've leapfrogged. We made a progress of about 50%. We moved from around the position 142 to 77 from 2014 in a span of around five years, and it's a great progress. But still, if you see, if you dig deep within that, there are multiple criteria in which we still lag behind, like in case of enforcing contracts, which is basically how fast are your disputes resolved, which in case in our case is handled by the judiciary. You know, I'm happy governments in India are now taking interest in improving the ease of doing business rankings. That's a good sign. But what's happening is, like any bureaucrat does, there's an effort to try and look at some low-hanging fruit because it's like cracking an IIT examination. We're good at cracking an examination. That's Indian psyche, without going into the fundamental concepts and applying them well. Here also same approach of bringing. All right, this particular item. The score is this much. Now let's do this. Then, therefore, the score will improve. We are not looking at the outcomes. Therefore, while I am happy with the attention given to ease of doing business, doing it like cracking an examination just to get a ranking there is not sufficient. There are three big issues in ease of doing business. One is, as I said, rule of law, enforcement of contracts and settlement of disputes. We are abysmally poor. The second is land management. Whether acquisition of land or holding the land or land records and land management is abysmally poor in this country. You have a situation where, on a day-to-day -day basis, even today, even after liberalisation of the economy, there are so many compliance issues. You have to reach out to the government. You have to get a piece of paper from them. This, that. Everybody knows that there is phenomenal day-to-day -day corruption. Even when the entrepreneur is not seeking any benefit out of turn. There is phenomenal extortionary corruption. Everybody knows that. If we don't realize it, we are lying to ourselves. All these three are hurting the businesses very badly. The third one may not hurt the big players, a multi-billion-dollar conglomerate investing big money. They may be able to write off-order administration because they have direct access to top political leaders at the state and national level. But a small and medium entrepreneur, for him, the day-to-day -day interactions with the government are critical. He doesn't have the political clout. To write a shot of them, or the big money to pay off the big politicians, and it's the small and medium enterprises that ultimately are going to create employment. World over, even in a country like America, they protect and nurture always small and medium enterprises. Therefore, all these three are big issues. If you take judiciary, at every level, there are serious problems. The number of courts are inadequate. Per unit population, we have only about ten or eleven judges per hundred thousand population. As opposed to 110 judges in the United States, 60 to 70 in Europe and other economies, inadequate number, and even that number, they are not doing well because the procedures are archaic. You know, in the courts, the whole of the morning session, three hours, until lunch time, in most cases, in most courts, is lost every day only in so-called call work. You post 40 or 50 cases and simply call them case after case. Who is present? Who is absent? And somebody seeks adjournment. You say adjourned or not adjourned. Three hours of court time when there are so many thirty million cases pending in courts. There are very few judges per population, and uh, already there is dilatory procedures. Three hours of court time every day is wasted only in call work in most of the trial courts. Absurd. 
take crime investigation completely politically controlled police work a prosecution completely politically controlled our procedures are archaic so at every level if you really care there are a lot of things we can do we are doing very little pretending to do a lot there are problems keep remaining and actually they keep mounting same is the case with land management you take hyderabad city i mean tens of thousands of people bought a small property to build a house or something suddenly realize that it's not the, the the seller didn't have the right to property and you bought it registered but you you are hoodwinked for no fault of yours or it's government land there are some regulations saying that you cannot sell that assigned to somebody and somebody bought it and sold and all kinds of things so everywhere you have this pattern you touch a family you will have somebody who will tell you a story about what happened you cannot run a great economy or encourage investment or promote growth with this kind of framework so good that you are paying attention to ease of doing business as a government but bad that you are only doing the window dressing to get the ranking rather than do the real thing to transform land ownership pattern people we must completely legislate a law whereby the title is guaranteed once you register the property you are taking thousands of crores of stamp duty the governments what is the purpose is it rodi mamul if you can't guarantee a title if i can't be sure that this land actually belongs to the person who is selling me and by buying it honestly i am actually getting the title what is the purpose of all this you just extort money from the people these things can and must be set right they may not happen overnight the process begins in a few years time will will mature we are not in beginning the process and the labor loss look at labor loss i mean the last count i heard is on 46 or 47 labor loss i am losing the complex maze in the compliance problem the harassment in the process and even now they are saying we'll bring him four courts good better than those 47 laws even now the fundamentals they they're not touch if i employ a person it becomes a liability permanently to me what will be my inclination i will go for more capital intensive industry with fewest possible employees in a country where there is massive unemployment so your greatest advantage of a large number of working people your labor that advantage is lost that is your greatest the technology is not our advantage productivity is not our advantage actually at least you have workforce low wage labor available if that becomes your disadvantage not an advantage then where is the competitive advantage for the country so with our labor loss you are guaranteeing you ask any entrepreneur what is the effort minimize employees maximize capital investment and mechanize or automate as much as you can in a country where millions upon millions are unemployed i think i'd go back a little bit and discuss more on this in the direction of judicial reforms because you're one of the key people who worked on the setting up of njac the national judicial appointments commission which was a mechanism you set for choosing the judges of the highest courts of the country which until today was done by the judiciary themselves how do you feel about the uh, judicial interference in that case wherein they declared that law unconstitutional in fact we initiated the whole process we put together an outstanding uh, group of eminent jurists all parties came together the congress party initiated it when they were in government epa nda followed it up and unanimously all parties 
they approved it. Only one member, I think Ram Jethmalani was a lone member who dissented. There is no good reason to dissent at all. It's a sound law. Unfortunately, in a self-serving order, the Supreme Court quashed it. And the parliament, by this time, was divided. The parties could not come together for the sake of the country. And therefore, the Supreme Court judgment stood. So, NJAC, for the time being now, we lost that battle, sadly. And Supreme Court's order, I am absolutely clear, is unconstitutional. In no democratic country do the courts appoint themselves. That is theocracy. You appointing your successors is theocracy. In a democracy, the people vote the government. And the government, in consultation with judiciary or some other process, in a transparent manner, appoints other institutions. If each collector of the district says, I will appoint my successor. If each election commissioner says, I will appoint my successor. Each judge says, I will appoint my successor. Where is democratic government? That's what happens in Iran. The mullahs decide who are the next rulers. Not the political process. So it is constitutionally and functionally in every which way it is wrong. But then, when the political parties lost credibility, when they are busy fighting each other instead of looking out for the country, and their intent is questioned, then these things will happen, so don't worry. But other things they can do. I fought very hard with the government of India, again constituted many committees with former chief justices and others, came up with the local courts model. To a limited extent, the law was enacted only for rural areas, Gram Nyayalas Act. You must extend to urban areas and make them work. But despite the law being there, 2009 the law was enacted, 10 years ago. In all of India, by now 5,000 courts should have functioned. And at least many of the small problems, both civil and criminal, should have been settled very quickly through the summary process at a low cost. At least the courts, the trial courts and the higher courts, would not have been overcrowded. Just like hospitals are overcrowded, big hospitals are overcrowded with small problems. Big courts are overcrowded with small problems. But so far, the country did not show the political will, even after enacting a law. I worked very hard to make that law happen. But we are not implementing. So there are ways of doing it. Similarly, procedural law. Everybody knows our procedures are archaic. I mentioned to you, for instance, three hours of call work. Absurd. We can easily change it. You post 25 criminal cases a day and the policeman's job is to bring all the accused in 25 cases and summon witnesses for all the cases and bring them to the court. How can the police function? You can change all that. Witness take. So, there is a lot of things that can be done. But nobody wants to pay attention. All our battles in the country are irrelevant to the people. On caste, on region, on religion, we manufacture issues and fight over them rather than address the real issues of education, healthcare, rule of law, local government, service delivery, agriculture, the real issues that are affecting the people of this country. So this year's economic survey clearly pointed out that just by increasing the number of judges in the lower courts can enhance the efficiency. And we could also add on that, the survey mentioned that we could add on more automation, more technology in this process which could eventually lead to a 100% clearance rate without without much spending. We can easily do that. Pendency will disappear. We are not showing the will. Our expenditure on rule of law is the lowest in the world for a democratic country. True. But there is this strong emphasis of on the doctrine of separation, the judicial independence theory. But at the same time, there is so much visible nepotism. Sometimes gives a feeling that the judiciary is insecure of its own autonomy which is kind of articulating itself into a more a closed approach wherein the judiciary is not open to the democratic system in general. No, no. See, NJAC, the courts may have blocked. 
they will not block it if you bring in procedural law changes. You are not doing on your own. You are sitting with the with India's leading jurists and lawyers and saying what is possible and looking at the rest of the countries in the world. For instance, America has what are called people's courts. Britain has what are called small claims courts. They are very successful. Similar model, certainly the courts will be more than happy if the political will is there. Procedural laws, the courts will be happy to do it. Increase the number of courts, courts will be happy to do it if they are asking for it. So, let's not blame the judiciary for everything. It is the job of the parliament and the legislatures and the political process to find the money for that and to bring about the law. What is the purpose of legislation? To make things happen. If things are not happening right, you set it right. If you see the right kind of growth trajectories that are set in case of China or the East Asian economies, they are mostly, the path is set right by the small and medium enterprises and the startups. But in the recent economic survey, it shows a trend that we have been incentivizing small startups instead of incentivizing the younger startups. So basically what we have witnessed was in the five-year five lifespan of an enterprise, in a company in USA was converting or increasing its workforce rate by around seven times and Indian companies only increased it by 40% in a span of five years. So the, the, the gist is basically that incentivizing the small startups is stopping them from growing into bigger ones and that is hindering the growth because the value added is also growing at the same rate as the workforce addition. So what do you think about the incentivization scheme? Is it the is it a rational way right now? In the long term, I don't think incentives work, but in the short term, MSMEs require incentives, some incentives. My view is incentives should be as transparent as possible. Do not again subclassify and all that. So for instance, when you give tax incentives, if you say, I give you in a graded manner for five years tax incentive, automatically the younger companies will get that incentive. You don't have to worry about it. Barring that, you don't worry too much about micromanagement because that again distorts the incentives. That's not the right thing. There are, from what I understand, two big challenges to MSMEs. The first is, because of the labor laws and people like Arvind Panagaria, even before the current government came to power in 2014, he wrote along with others a book on what's happening, what should happen to India. And in that book, he demonstrated conclusively that we are not allowing the small companies to grow to a reasonable size, reasonable scale, to take advantage of economy of scale. And therefore, they remain to be small, 50, 100 workers, like garment industry is a classic example, because of labor laws. If only India allowed them to grow, India would have been a great champion of garment industry. China, which is five times India's GDP, four times India's per capita income, four and a half times or five times India's per capita income, China it exports $175 billion of garments and textiles. India being the largest producer of cotton with enormous uh, low-priced uh, labor in the country, our total exports of uh, cotton, your uh, textiles uh, and garments, etc. is $19 billion. Bangladesh is exporting more than India. Why? Because labor laws are so inconvenient that to grow to a bigger size is a nuisance to an entrepreneur. They prefer to be smaller being under the radar. That is one problem. The second problem is credit system. In a credit system which is not really helping the right kind of entrepreneur, most of it is politically driven. 
you're not the credit is not reaching the right entrepreneur who actually needs it the number of small entrepreneurs who are genuine but not politically connected not getting the kind of support needed is legendary you just go around and you find out and then gst well gst is good and i welcome it i am told i'm not an expert in the subject therefore experts must talk about it a great deal i am told that some of the provisions are such that the small and medium enterprise and micro enterprise are deeply seriously hurt so we must overcome all these hurdles apart from day to day corruption i mentioned to you already and what do you think about the insurance based schemes that are launched in this government especially the ayushman bharat scheme which is dubbed as modi care which inspired it gets its inspiration from the medicare program of obama so it it has a cover it's covering around 50 crore people in india right now the people mostly below poverty line based on the socio economic census so even in case of the pm fasal bima yojana what we saw was the basic motive of insurance companies is always making profit and that's the trend we've seen the insurance companies made around 10000 crores profit in the fasal bima yojana and only around 32% of the claims were served and the rest of them were rejected so it didn't turn out to be a win win for like as it's usually described so what do you think are, are insurance based schemes failing to serve the people's needs first as a generic principle having risk pooling what is insurance risk pooling having risk pooling for individuals households companies businesses is vital a cyclone a flood some other natural vagary unexpected accident or something businesses and individuals will not be able to withstand and government is not here to pay tax money for individual losses in india somehow if i lose i think government is the one therefore government simply gives 10 lakh rupees to this family that family that's not right not the right approach insurance is the correct approach we have to expand that but insurance is very hard to make it work for unorganized sector particularly a sector that is open to vagaries of nature like agriculture therefore insurance in india much of it whatever the claims be ever since its inception till date with respect to whichever parties in power it is actually a crop loan insurance they may claim any number of things in reality the only way it works is if i take a crop loan from an institution because that is recorded this now becomes organized lending it covers at least the crop loan part if there is damage done even that has limitations because after all when there are millions of small farmers there is no other country like india having millions of small farmers there are an estimated i think something like 30 to 40 crore holdings in india land holdings in india now average holding is about a hectare or less incredibly small holdings who is raising what crop where god knows there's no way of understanding so in such a situation insurance individually cannot work except the crop loan insurance kind of a thing but supposing you take your uh, plantation crops where the government is collecting the taxes agricultural income tax and there is no limit on holding land holding then what happens serious players will enter serious investment is made and they are scientific they understand the risk assessment and they take adequate precautions like insurance then insurance will work is measurable 
because when multiple players are there even when you do crop cutting experiments to determine when the crops are lost it's all you know because my my field may be all right your neighbor's field may be bad it's a very unscientific method but there's nothing you can do when there are small holdings bigger holdings allow collective farming either as cooperatives or contract farming or imposed income tax and then have larger holdings protecting the rights of the farmers at the same time so do whatever it takes farmers and tenants at the same time but modernize our land holding laws and allow capital investment modernization of agriculture then automatically insurance becomes viable the current model whatever they say i've been hearing it not today probably for the past 30 years in some form or other insurance we've been talking about it for 25 to 30 years in india the same problems are repeat each time we pretend that we fix the problems we got something new something innovative great headlines but nothing much is happening it's not transforming agriculture therefore you have to go deeper when it comes to healthcare insurance based healthcare delivery system always jacked up the costs world over because it's essentially a tertiary care insurance based system at the cost of primary care primary care cannot be insured because primary care is before you get sickness it is immunization it is childbirth it is nutrition it is hygiene and sanitation it is preventive health mostly or family health therefore before ill health develops there is no way you can actually insure it that's what public health system should be about primary health care system should be about instead of a primary health problem becoming a primary health problem because a very poor primary health care we are making it a secondary and tertiary health care problem and because tertiary health care is insured covered by insurance the hospitals have an incentive to bill because tertiary care is very costly at the high end per bed cost capital cost is 1 crore rupees even at a moderate cost it's 40 to 60 lakh rupees per bed capital cost the billing per year ranges from 30 lakh rupees per year per bed to up to 1 crore rupees per bed per year that is what tertiary care is world over tertiary care is expensive you want an mri it costs a million dollars million dollars for just one equipment and the many more equipments required in a hospital just one equipment is million dollars it's like an enterprise we want pet scan 2 and 1/2 million dollars one one machine we want pyrotactic radiotherapy probably 5 million dollars one machine that's the kind of cost you're looking at and the cost of personnel these are the most skilled most trained and most expensive to train them most trained people and therefore you have to pay and the physical infrastructure is like a five star hospital so tertiary care is by definition expensive the moment you convert healthcare problems into tertiary care insurance driven hospital based care the cost will always go up the benefits will be marginal individuals and families have an illusion of benefit because a one one or two lakh bill which i would have paid from my pocket if government is picking up i feel good about it but if you take the society what is the cost what is the benefit benefit is marginal cost is huge america is a classic example america spends 18% of gdp on healthcare about 10% from government at various levels about 8% to the private sector through insurance premiums but despite that america is 35th in the world in healthcare outcomes worst among the rich countries 
spending way above any other rich country way above any other rich country is a bad model canada is a good model britain is a good model many european countries are a good model unfortunately we are going by the american model and we are underfunding it for instance if you really want 10 crore families 50 crore people to be covered with all kinds of problems at the and 5 lakh rupees is the coverage of the prime minister's program at the very least i'm talking at the most conservative absurdly small amount anything less than 2% of the cost covered cannot be sustained even 2% is incredible actually even 2% is not sustainable assume 2% on 5 lakhs 2% is 10000 rupees 10 crore families 1 lakh crores is the minimum premium what is the allocation of the government 8000 crores 6000 crores it's a fraud on the people of the country and if you want to increase with the same 100000 crores you can significantly dramatically improve health if you design a proper primary health care system with a doctor of choice available to every family within 10 15 kilometers doctor of choice very much like british system registering with them and good quality primary and secondary care and tertiary care improve the public hospitals at the high end spend a lot they are spending a paltry 6 to 8 lakh rupees per bed including medical college and nursing college private hospital the billing is 40 lakhs to 1 crore rupees per bed where is 40 lakhs where is 5 to 6 to 8 lakhs this includes medical college and nursing college by the way make it 15 20 lakh rupees here without all that cost you can give a dramatically improved tertiary care good quality primary care good quality secondary care at the same cost healthcare is dramatically improved instead of looking at that we are looking for american solutions in indian context i i i admire america in many respects the good things of america let us follow the bad things of america let us ignore two even in case of us the main problem in insurance based schemes is that there is an extremely powerful lobby of the pharma and the insurance companies who try to increase the drug prices and also at the same time make sure that most of the needs or most of the operations or surgeries required are not covered under basic insurance schemes or they charge heavy premiums high cost low impact until obama care came 27 million americans had no insurance even now only about 10 million are still about 15 17 million americans have no insurance coverage and unless it becomes an emergency they don't go to hospital because emergency care because of court orders is free but somebody else is paying if somebody is getting emergency care free it is at my cost when i am paying premium when i am paying premiums so it's not free at all it's an illusion and an average family healthy family pays 8000 10000 uh, as a pre insurance premium then government spends humongous amounts i think 1.2 1.3 trillion dollars is spent by the government on medicare medicaid so you are looking at fantastic expenditure with very poor outcomes and with enormous misery that's not the model that should be an example for the country yeah what do you think about medical tourism as a service that india could excel in because we have an almost market cap of around 20% in the global market in the healthcare industries we have affordable surgeries almost 10 to 15 times cheaper than in the major economies which gives us an edge a lot of dollars come into our market and but there is there is also signs that this could lead to more privatization of the healthcare industry see we must not be dogmatic about this matter if india can provide low cost service which is viable and therefore attract them why not for instance you take a cardiothoracic surgery 
you take a hip replacement or any joint replacement or a kidney replacement some other sophisticated interventions india is able to at least not every hospital but the high end hospitals in india luckily for us a we have the infrastructure b we have the res- human resources our doctors finest doctors went abroad particularly to britain not to america really and they learned the skills and came back because those who went to america very few came back to impart skills again because those who went to britain and other countries came back again with high quality skills our rates of surgery are the highest in the world very highly and our cost is the lowest in the world our safety record is as good as anywhere in the world so when there is an advantage there supposing in america it costs let us say for a heart surgery 100000 or 150000 dollars in india you can do at 2 or 3 lakh rupees and that's viable for us if a foreigner you charge something more with the market based that make it 5 lakh rupees why bother and if a 100 patients come and give us 5 5 crore rupees to that extent it's helping india a you're getting foreign exchange b you're providing employment and c that is cross subsidizing indian healthcare system therefore i think to the extent it's viable to the extent it's feasible we must allow that yeah this year's budget and the previous year uh, we have clearly shown interest and inclination towards the renewable energy by incentivizing electric vehicle purchases and also encouraging building charging infrastructure as we already talked we have made not so good progress in the field of ai and technology as such so do you think this could be our field this could be where we could be producing more and be self sufficient as a principle i am all for ecological improvement ecologically sustainable growth and ending plastics apart from air pollution there's no sensible human being who can argue against it but two things are missing we should have been on the bandwagon of this whole electric motor vehicles china has gone into that china is now emerging as a leader in the world apart from people like elon musk etc china is now really forging ahead we are now becoming clients customers buyers of technology and that's not a smart way of building your economy second you cannot overnight transform a fossil fuel driven automobile sector into electricity driven automobile sector because a lot of other infrastructure the distribution network the charging for instance no you cannot overnight now create a charging infrastructure and it takes hours to charge you don't have disposable batteries available or detachable batteries available that technology has not come in the world yet in a serious way so unless you prepare ground for that and progressively move towards that by suddenly incentivizing one kind of motor vehicle and therefore disincentivizing the existing motor vehicle industry which already which is coming into its own only now we entered that market very late even i remember we only had two cars in those days ambassador and fiat maruti came later for a long time only that only now in the last 15 20 years slowly the variety of vehicles are available market is sort of becoming better and better and maturing suddenly you kill it because if the consumer doesn't want to buy this you kill this but the other one doesn't happen because infrastructure lag is there you create a very asymmetric condition so you must go towards that but a build your r&d capability and make indigenous things and b build your infrastructure capability so that that will work and this can be replaced by that 
And right now, I am told the latest feedback I get is already there is a 20% decline in the automobile purchases because people are postponing those decisions because government is aggressively going towards all these incentives for electric automobile. The idea is right, but the, the sequencing is wrong. 80% of our fossil fuel is anyways imported and there is also a tremendous potential for India showing up as a soft power by embracing renewable energy even though we are a developing country. As I said, idea is right. But without sequencing, without building indigenous capability in both infrastructure and R&D development, we are going to be consumers. We are too big a country to forever be consumers. For long, we have been consumers of everything. Today, we are consumers of, of uh, mobile phones, we are consumers of uh, computers. We are, until, until recently, we are consumers of cars from the world, rest of the world, consumers of manufacturing products. You can't be that. You have to be producers. So, lastly, you have personally experienced the struggle behind getting the RTI bill passed and setting up the institution, which is a quite powerful one, which empowers the citizens in general. Aruna Roy and I are the architects of the law. We both were, were ultimately responsible for the bill in that form. Now, every single word, uh, she and I would watch for and we won it. So, uh, there's a lot that has gone into it. Do you think the recent amendment has uh, tried to, the government is trying to curb the independence or reduce the powers of the institution as a whole because they are, they've introduced a clause wherein they could alter the terms of service, tenure and basically have their own say in appointments even in state information commissions? No, it's not really an attempt to take away the power. It is an absolutely unconvincing explanation given by the government. It is a meaningless, mindless, intrusive, needless amendment. It's not true, it's taken away powers. What it's doing is A, salary we will fix. B, term we will fix. And C actually is beneficial to the commissioners appointed. You will get the salary plus you also get the world pension. Earlier law said salary minus pension. So third one is actually beneficial to commissioners. The other two are token things. But they have no meaning at all. Why are they doing it? It makes no sense and there is no convincing explanation. This is merely to show who is the boss. I have the power. Parliament can do whatever it wants. And a signal not merely to RTA commission but to all statutory authorities in the country. So, for a meaningless purpose, without any outcome change, there is no change in outcome in this. The government is doing it. This is, I would not say abuse of power, but definitely it is misuse of power. It is a wasteful use of power. That is not what government should do. It is a Tughlaq-like exercise of power. And there is no rational explanation why government wants to do it. True, but in a previous judgment, the SC has clearly stated that the tenure and the terms of service of the Information commission are an essential aspect of their autonomy. No, let us see. Certainly, some of us will challenge it in courts. There are several challenges possible. One is whether this actually is affecting autonomy. Government will argue that after all, I am they are being given salary. They are not being changed once a person is appointed, and they are given a fixed tenure, and they can't be removed. Section 14, which talks about removal, still is by the Supreme Court inquiry. So we are not removing anybody. So what's your problem? That's a plausible argument. We will argue that this is sending a signal that uh, government still is controlling, but that's a weak argument. The other argument is, it is also directing the states what to do, and states should be allowed to do their own thing. So, there will be all kinds of things in courts, but the point is, whether the government wins or loses in the court, this is a Tughlaq-like amendment. It has no purpose. Government is investing enormous political capital for a totally 
irrelevant and anti-people law. It doesn't make any sense. This is not a wise exercise of governmental power. It's a very bad exercise of governmental power. Thank you so much, sir, for giving us this chance. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We hope and I wish you really well for the future endeavors you're trying to pursue. Thank you so much, sir. Bye.